Hey, how are you? Hey, you know what? I'm actually really good. It is a sunny springtime day in Oregon, and we don't get a lot of those. And in fact, the weather has been really crummy lately, so it makes the bright sunshine just feel all that much better, and I've really enjoyed it. How are you? That's awesome. I am now envious. We imported the gray, rainy, Oregonian weather. Apparently, you just tossed it over here. Uh, And so today was a gray, (laughs) rainy, kind of ratty day, honestly. And fortunately, it will not be like that tomorrow. So I am looking forward to a lovely day. I have a run planned first thing in the morning tomorrow, and the weather's supposed to be gorgeous. So I am hanging on, looking forward to that. And uh, also, I have to tell you, I was on the phone with uh, one of the other guys at my church who travels a lot for his job, and he was driving through the part of Oregon where you live and work, and he threatened to do a number of things that required the calling of 911, and the only thing that stopped him was the fact that I knew you were not working today. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, my wife and daughter came by my work the other day, which is kind of a rare treat. And I told them when they got there to let me know, and I would buzz them through the gate. I said, you know, if I don't answer your text, though, just call my work number. And then I said, like, no, really, the, the supervisor number, not 911. Uh, yeah, you don't want your family being like, Hey, is my husband there? Is not what a nine one one operator wants to hear. <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. Um, thankfully, we don't live in the same county where I work, so I know I'm not going to take a nine one one call, like a genuine one, from my family. So, I think that would be the hardest thing. And I know of stories oh, that that's happened. Yes. So, uh, I can only anyway. imagine that would be so horrible. But I'm assuming that's not why you called, though. What's on your mind? Yeah, I actually have fiction reading on the brain. And we got to capitalize on this because it's not often on my mind. And you're the fiction reader in the friendship. So I'm coming to you with some thoughts, but I want to pick your brain on why Christians should incorporate fiction reading into their life. And I'll I'll tell you, there's there's two things that prompt my thinking here. One is that I just finished Andrew Peterson's first book in his trilogy, The Wingfeather Saga. And that, right? That was so much fun. It's such a great story, but then he also weaves in all of these just silly tidbits. And I don't know, he's he lots of tongue in cheek stuff throughout the whole book. And it was amazing. I laughed and I was really into the story the whole time. So it was just great. So have you seen any of the, the, the show? No, I know that it's been turned into, or it's being turned into a cartoon, but no, I have not seen any of it. Yeah. Most of season one has dropped and I have not watched it yet. I had forgotten actually that it was coming out until this very moment. Uh, but it's supposed to be quite good. Oh, awesome. I, I totally want to see that. But I want to finish the saga first. Like, I want to finish the trilogy first. Oh, sure. So that's totally on my mind. And I just thoroughly enjoyed it. In fact, I would attribute some of my good mood even today to having recently read this. I just enjoyed it so much. But then 
The other reason I want to pick your brain about it, and specifically why I think it's good for this podcast, we talk a lot about spiritual formation on this podcast. And what I'm fascinated by, my spiritual formation professor has assigned us different practices to try out all throughout the semester. And so Mm. we're currently, this two-week block, we are all assigned the practice of doing an examine. And so we're just, we're reflecting on our day through a kind of a scripted prayer to, with the cooperation of the Holy Spirit, review our day and just kind of lay it before God. So that's the examine. But coming up soon, our assigned spiritual practice is fiction reading. Ooh. Isn't that amazing? That's awesome. And especially for a bunch of people in seminary, right? This is definitely a spiritual practice. This is a break from the norm. And so I just wanna I just wanna kick it around. Why read fiction as a spiritual practice? That's amazing. Man, I have so many thoughts. So but you said you've been reading some fiction lately. And I, I, you said the Peterson series. Anything else that you've been reading? So I think I mentioned a number of episodes ago that I started rereading the Lord of the Rings series. And mm. that is still in progress. I had to wait a very long time for the next book to come available at the library. And then somehow or another, it like auto-deleted off of my wait list. And so then I had to get back in line. And I'm so irritated. So... That is still in progress, but it's still going to be a number of weeks before I can resume that. Um, And I'm waiting in line for the next uh, Wing Feather Saga. And then I was just talking to my daughter. Have you read anything by Chaim Potok? You successfully got me to read The Chosen in college, and I loved it and still remember it. But it's the only Chaim Potok book that I have ever read. It's phenomenal. But... There's another book that I want to reread of his called Davida's Harp, and the character development of Davida herself is so amazing. It's one of those enduring characters that lives in your soul long after you've finished the book. And it's time for me to revisit Davida. Uh, So that's on my mind. And I think I'm also working my way through the Dragon Flight or the um, Dragon Quest books. So... That's my fiction reading right now. Man, that is so interesting to me. Uh, Like you said, I mean, I absolutely adore fiction. My earliest Christian memories are about the influence of fiction on my spiritual life. And fiction has been an enduring, formative practice for me from long before I knew that that was a thing. So I love this idea. And I, but I, and I have all sorts of different kind of categories of thought on this, but I want to start with this one that you just hit on that I think is so interesting. You talked about the fact that Davida is a character it's time for you to revisit. And... Mm. One of the things that I think great fiction does is it allows us to get into the head of a variety of different kinds of characters, sometimes that we can relate with and sometimes that we can't relate with. And 
This, I think, idea of being able to get in somebody else's head and experience is really profound. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You're exactly right. And Davida, the reason why I want to revisit Davida is because I've lost a lot of her story. I have forgotten what drew me to the story. It's been about 15 years since I've read it, maybe even 20. And I don't know why anymore that I have this longing to revisit that character. I just know how reading that book made me feel. And I felt what she felt. And that that idea of empathy that you're talking about, that's exactly what it is. So I'm left with a feeling and nothing to attach it to anymore because I've lost the storyline. So I feel like I need to revisit the storyline because there's something I feel in relation to that character and I don't know why. Mm, yes. I, I know exactly what you mean. I have this kind of emotional connection to a number of moments in stories that I have read, as well as shows that I have watched. Um, if it's okay to broaden this conversation out, I think it's better for it to be about fiction in general than just about written fiction, if that's all right. Yeah. Um, and the first and oldest memory I have of this kind of emotional connection with a character is with the most formative fiction in my life, which is the Chronicles of Narnia. How old were you when you first read the Chronicles of Narnia? That's a really hard question because I feel like at least the storyline of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has been with me throughout my whole life. But it was probably in my college years, maybe even after college, that I read the entire set. So parts of the story have been with me for a long time, but that to me is actually a more recent, it's an adult acquisition. Oh, interesting. Okay, so for me, I was mid-high school, maybe early high school, and I actually discovered these books on the shelf. Uh, I have uh, a couple of older sisters that are from my dad's first marriage, and, and so they never lived in the same houses. And I was visiting one of them, and she had the whole series on her shelf, and I, I had never read them, and I borrowed them. And there are a number of moments in these stories that are still deeply formative for me where I connected with a character. Like uh, in The Magician's Nephew, there is this moment where the main character, uh, or one of the two main characters, this boy named Diggory, he has made a huge mistake. And he meets Aslan for the first time. And he know I mean, he knows he has really jacked things up. And Aslan looks at him in the eye and says, Son of Adam, only you and I in this world have ever known sorrow. Shall we be friends? Hmm. And that shame that he feels in that moment and the divine response of the Aslan, who is the character that takes the place of God in the story, 
man, I, I have lived in that moment much of my life and in my healthiest moments when I make a mistake, the best thing that I can hear is God whispering to me through that story, uh, shall we be friends? Hmm. Which gets off, I, I really was starting off to talk about the character development and my relation to what Diggory felt in that moment. And I'm as I'm saying it, I'm realizing I resonated with the moment more than I resonated with the character. So maybe that gets off the point that uh, you were initially making about about identifying with characters. But uh, you have, despite calling me the fiction fan in the friendship, do you have moments like that in stories that resonate powerfully with you? You know, I think not necessarily something that resonates so powerfully, but things that I come back to mentally time and again. And the Chronicles of Narnia is a great place for that. But it's probably not as formative for me because I read it in my adult years rather than in my childhood. But the scene where Eustace, this is the voyage of the Dawn Treader, and Eustace has turned into a dragon. And he mm. is in the process of trying to shed his dragon skin. And every time he thinks he has cut deep enough to finally remove the skin, he is ashamed to find that there is more underneath. And he, do, he goes through this process multiple times before Aslan meets him and says, I have to do this for you. And he digs his claws in deeper than Eustace could have ever imagined and rips this dragon skin from his flesh and tears it off of him and then tells him to jump in this pool where his raw and tender flesh is suddenly restored. And he comes back out completely restored. And that picture mm. of God's removing of sin or removing the hardness of my heart or variety of different ways I could apply this, the fact that this hurts and is restorative was so helpful. And it's it's something that you have to put into fiction in order to get the full, as you're talking about empathy, to go with it. The emotion of it goes with it in a way that if you just put it in theological language, it doesn't resonate as powerfully. Mm. Well, and this this hits another category that I think is really important, and that's the idea of imagination. We don't often talk about the role of imagination in our spiritual formation, but I think you're hitting on why it's super important. Yeah, it's funny because you said the word imagination, and my immediate association was with that tired old Christian song that's played on the radio until it's about to fall off of the speakers themselves. The I can only imagine, and it's like picturing what it's going to be oh, like yeah, to be yeah. in heaven. Oh my yep. gosh, I am so sick of that song. I was sick of that song 20 years ago, and it's still getting played on the radio. So I'm sorry <laughs> to any of you all out there who love it. But what I appreciate is its attempt to push people toward imagination and how this is beyond our comprehension. So what if we took a moment 
to imagine, to put ourselves in this thing that we only have a vague idea of what it'll be like. And I think maybe that touches on a little bit of what you're getting at, even though I'm using a song I'm really, really sick of to you <laughs> as a, the positive example. No, I, I think you make a great point. Uh, you know, when we see what the Bible says about our eternal state, there isn't a ton there. And the language seems to be far more evocative than factual. Ooh, that's a good way to put that. Right? Uh, I'm patting myself on the back at this point, because that was a good way to put that. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think the social media guy should pull that out as a episode quote, you know, just a little tip. Uh, well, if you want to send that in as a recommendation, you can actually post that on our Facebook as a comment, and then he might get it. Um, <laughs> but uh, seriously, the language is far more evocative than it is factual. I, I don't know that our eternal lives have to do with a an actual cube city that is made of gold that is 12,000, whatever it is, stadia or cubits or whatever uh, yeah, in right. every di direction. But I do think that there is something, I think there is an invitation in much of the language, particularly prophetic and apocalyptic language, as well as Jesus' parable language, that is often assuming we will use our imaginations to fill in the details while still understanding that it is an imaginative attempt to understand, not trying to make a scientific fact out of what we imagine, but recognizing, how did you, you just said something really powerful, I think. You said that you have to use a story to communicate that point because theological language isn't enough, right? Did you, it, you said mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah, yeah. Another episode quote, if I may say so myself. Yes. And I think a lot of scripture invites us to be imaginative in those ways, recognizing it to be imaginative, because an imaginative filling out, even if it is factually inaccurate, might be more accurate than a flat, emotionless, purely cerebral understanding. Oh my goodness. I'm so glad you're saying this. All of this is reminding me, I, I've thought a lot recently about the fact that a good percentage of our Bible is narrative. It is telling mm -hmm. a story. And it's really hard to preach narrative because like, it's, it's just a story and it doesn't have a, so therefore go and do these things attached to it. Instead, what it does is it invites you to participate in the story, learn from the story, imagine yourself in the story, and allow this story to shape you. And that's a very different thing than we tend to do with the Bible. But it also makes me think of Eugene Peterson in his biography, uh, The Pastor, or autobiography, The Pastor. He talks about his the influence of his mother and her amazing ability to tell stories, particularly her amazing ability to tell biblical stories. But she augments these biblical stories with her own details. And when he got older, 
I mean, he'd heard her, his mom say these things over and over and over and teach these amazing, elaborate stories. And when he got older and he read the stories out of the Bible, he's like, hang on, the Bible left out all the good parts. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I just think that is so great. Like, not that I am an, you know, advocating that we add things to the Bible, but I am saying we need to like flesh out these stories, live in these stories smell, breathe, experience these stories, because I think that's what the narrative of the Bible is asking us to do. Absolutely. Well, and you know, this is one of the things I have deeply appreciated about The Chosen as it has attempted to do this exact thing, right? The the Chosen is not trying to be a one-to-one faithful translation of the Bible, Right. It is trying to be an imaginative engagement with what the Bible is trying to say in some ways that I find to be absolutely delightful and mm-hmm. spiritually quite helpful for me. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm assuming you've seen The Chosen. Is this yep. correct? Okay. Although so, I'm very behind. I have not watched the third season. so I haven't either. I haven't finished the second season. I'm halfway through the second season. But like you take this the moment where Peter is called by Jesus and he's told to throw the nets in on the other out on the other side of the boat. Do you remember this moment in the chosen at all? Mhm. So Peter throws the nets out and then he raises his hands and sort of smirks at Jesus with a, see, I told you nothing was going to happen kind of look. <laughs> yes. Right? And then Jesus sort of raises his hands a little bit and smirks right back at him. <laughs> right? And then suddenly there's this giant chaos of fish that almost knock the boat over. And... I have been in so many moments of my Christian life where if I were courageous enough to be honest in prayer, I would hold my hands up at Jesus and smirk and say, see, I told you. (laughs) And to think, I think quite accurately about the character of God in that moment, as it is demonstrated in Jesus, I think... A smirk back, which implies wait for it, is perfect and exactly what Jesus would have said and exactly what needs to be in that moment and is great imagining. Does that mean absolutely 100% Peter smirked at Jesus and Jesus smirked back? No. But are we getting the character of God engaging with a a person through uh, the incarnation of Christ 100%. And I think it makes it richer and better because of the imagination that's involved. Yeah, I I completely agree. And there are times when I am reading the Gospels and I don't quite know Jesus' tone of voice or look on his face or the way the characters in the story mean it. Like, I think his conversation with the woman at the well is one of those times I wish it was caught on video. 
I want to know what tone of voice was used. What looks were they giving one another? There seems to be, I don't know, it could be tension. It could be playfulness. It could be, honestly, it could be flirtation. It could be a variety of different things. And as I go through the text, I almost try on different tones of voice, or I try on different ways of expressing it uh, and different looks that they're exchanging, different emotions that they might be feeling to try to really get a sense of what's happening in the text. Because you read it differently depending on which emotions or whatever you assign to the characters. Absolutely. And kind of in line with that, first of all, I also do this when I'm reading the Bible all the time. I was just reading earlier today the moment where Jesus sees the boat on the Sea of Galilee and and the storm, and he walks out to go help them. But then there's this delightful little detail that he was about to walk by the boat. And I constantly find myself thinking, what is that about? But also wondering, like, what was Jesus feeling? Did they see him about to walk by the boat? On some level, I wonder if this is a, like, silly wave as you go by. Hey, how's that going for you guys? Is this, like, what is Jesus feeling in that moment? But to the point, there's no way he was feeling nothing. Mm. And so any reasonable guess with our imagination, as long as we acknowledge it's our imagination, not inspiration— any reasonable guess, I think, is better than no reasonable guess in those moments, right? Yes. I love that you said it that way. There's no way he was feeling nothing. And sometimes I feel like, at least in my experience, when I was growing up trying to read the Bible and trying to understand this whole Christian thing, I thought of the Bible as, you know, this this sacred text. And the characters were very flat to me. And I honestly experienced them as having no emotion, having no feeling. It was just facts on a page. You know, as I have started to grasp what you're talking about, about there's no way they were feeling nothing. Boy, the text sure comes alive at that point. Hmm. Well, and this is coming back to the character in Heim Plotok or whoever The thing that I love about good fiction is that it trains my imagination to get into the other character's head. This is a skill, not a choice that we make. I can't be Mm. like, oh, I'm going to just get in the other person's head. I got to practice. And reading fiction gives me the opportunity, if it's good fiction, to practice. I love that you said, if it's good fiction. So I want to read you this. When I finished the Wing Feather Saga book one, which is On the Edge of the Dark Sea of Darkness. Best title I, ever. Isn't it great? Um, so as I finished that, when I was trying to like mark it as complete, I accidentally clicked on Andrew Peterson's name and it pulled up his bio on Goodreads. And as you read it, he's like, okay, look, I do a lot of things. And so I want to, like help you out here. Yes, I write songs and yes, I do music. And yes, I uh, run a group called The Rabbit Room for people who do creative things. And I also write books. 
And I do all these things, but all of that. So this is what he says at the end of his bio that I just think is amazing. And it speaks to what you're saying about good fiction. The common thread in all this is my love for Christ and his kingdom, my belief in the power of story and art, and my need for family and community. If I had to boil it all down, I'd say this. I want to use my gifts to tell the truth and to tell it as beautifully as I can. Ooh, that is well said. Isn't it? And I just feel like everything he does is well said. I, his, he's the most brilliant lyricist I've ever seen in, in his music. I want to tell the truth and to tell it as beautifully as I can. It's that that makes fiction, good fiction, good fiction, is to tell the truth beautifully. Mm-hmm. And, and the truth in the broadest sense. We've talked a lot about the ability to relate with the Bible and with God. The other piece of this that I think is important in fiction's ability to tell the truth is to tell the truth about other people's experience that I may not resonate with to help me get into their heads. Mm. And this I'm, I'm stealing from a, an author whose spiritual life would be in a very different place than mine, uh, but I couldn't talk about fiction for 45 minutes and not talk about Brandon Sanderson uh, since yeah. he's my favorite author. But one of the things he says regularly about why he writes is that he wants to understand other people and he wants to help people understand other people. And so he regularly writes about characters that have depression or uh, anxiety or uh, a whole range of different kinds of struggles. But intentionally, that's not what makes them them. They are just mm. a main character going through a story that happens to have depression. Uh, you know, and he does a ton of research and work to tell the truth about their life experience so that people who don't have those issues can understand them better. That's so good. Isn't that awesome? Like, what a fascinating reason to be a fiction writer, right? Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think about the, even the character or characters, the first author we mentioned was Haim Potok, somebody who's living in the mid-20th century in New York. That is a, a life experience I don't have, but The Chosen helped me broaden out my life experience a little bit because I was able to not understand everything about what it means to be Jewish in New York in the mid-20th century. That's not my point at all. But at least to be able to feel like I had an experience of what a person might have thought, felt in those moments in a way that I wouldn't have been able to even resonate with without Heim Potok's writing. Yeah, and it's funny how fiction kind of gives you those hooks to hang your hat on. Some experiential knowledge that you can work with. And going back to the picture of Eustace, for me, that was mm. a fictional moment that when I think about a theological con concept, 
I can come back to and say, oh, I understand this theological concept in light of this moment that I got to experience through this character. I didn't live that experience, but I lived that experience through that character, and now I can understand this concept on the other side of it. And so, yeah, you're right. I I don't know what it's like to be Jewish in the mid-20th century in New York City, but having read almost everything that Potok has written, I feel like I have a better idea than I otherwise would have. Hmm. Which... You know, and I, I like your your phrase, that gives us something to hang our hats on. The point isn't, therefore, I understand what it means to be Jewish. The point is, at least I have a starting point to have a conversation with someone who has that experience so that at least I can listen well. Mm. I guess for me, again, it's a starting point. Fiction is a starting point to, to, to practice empathy so that I can empathize with people in everyday life. It trains me to be empathic. Hmm. It's funny because as I'm reflecting, I'm like, okay, how do we, how do we tie a bow on this for this segment, right? How do we summarize this? And I don't think that this fully summarizes everything that we've said, but I, I, I'm going to say it again, like, welcome back, old friend. This is love God, love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Good fiction teaches us how to love God and love our neighbor. These yeah. are the, the these are the great commandments. It it gives us empathy, it gives us creativity, it gives us insight into somebody else, and it stokes our imagination so that we can truly love God and love one another. I just think that's great. Yeah. I, I mean, I've always loved fiction. I probably always will. And I, I appreciate the fact that you bring it back to this because I, I feel like we have hit on these two ideas, the idea of loving God and the idea of loving others, but I would not have been able to synthesize it into just that one concept that is so frequently where we land. Yes. That, that we are striving towards that or, or gently growing towards that perhaps, and that some very surprising tools are helpful along the way. Yeah. So I want to turn to the audience and ask you, what fiction have you read that does this for you or, or watched? I do agree. It should include something that might be a TV show or a movie or something. But what fiction have you encountered that helps you love God, love others, and do it with imagination and with beauty? I would love to have a list that I can go to. Uh, So join us on Facebook, on Instagram, and comment below. What is, what's some good resources that we can all go to, to engage our imaginations this direction? So with that, Josh from Missouri, what else have you been thinking about? You know, the thing that I've been thinking about actually dovetails with this conversation quite nicely. I started a new listening slash reading experience. It is a fictional audio only production in the form of a true crime podcast that has six episodes. 
Hmm. I, I don't even know what to say I started. And that's <laughs> exactly my point. The thing that I'm thinking about is how our concept of fiction is broadening out in a lot of different ways right now. The fact that we have fictionalized serial audio things is in some ways deeply reminiscent of the late 1800s or whenever fiction magazines were coming out that like serialized things like Sherlock Holmes and Charles Dickens and things like that. But it's still just, it's an odd thing to me that the form of fiction is diversifying from graphic novels to podcasts to all sorts of different things. And I just, I don't know that I have a lot to say about this other than I find it fascinating that a story can be told in a host of different mediums And I am intrigued to see what those mediums do to contribute to our storytelling abilities over the next 10, 20 years. Yeah, I think what that says to me is that we are just story people. Humans are drawn to story, to tell story, to hear stories. That's just part of our makeup. And so whatever mediums exist in our own generation, we're going to use them to tell stories. Yeah, absolutely. I I heard an interview with the author of of this, his name's Dan Wells, and he writes a lot of suspense thriller kinds of things. And he was actually even talking about the potential for fully immersive stories using Alexa in your home. Like he's very intrigued at the idea that you could be listening to a thriller story and then suddenly you hear a door squeaking in another room of your house via Alexa or you hear a squeak. Like he is very intrigued to try to utilize the existing technology. And and again, I'm just really intrigued to see where that goes because that's a fascinating concept. Wow. It's really cool how people think so outside the box. That's amazing. Right? Yeah, I love it. But uh, what about you? What else have you been thinking about? All right. I'm super excited by this, but it has nothing to do with anything that we've talked about, except maybe thinking outside the box. Uh, Maybe that's the tie-in, but that's as close as I've got. Hey, that Um, is the point of this segment is that there doesn't have to be a tie-in. Right. I think it was more just like a cue to you and to our listeners, like, okay, hard left. We're going to take a hard turn here. Um, So Dean. Bingo. (laughs) uh, So (laughs) Dean uh, emailed me about two weeks ago and said, hey, I ran across this idea from Gary Burge. What do you think of it? And I've been stewing on it ever since. And then it so happens that the exact passage in question Uh, my pastor preached on this last weekend. So like, I'm doubly thinking about this. So uh, the text is John 9, and this is the story of this guy that was born blind. And the disciples ask, hey, who sinned? Like him or his parents or like, 
like obviously this guy is cursed with blindness because of some sin. So whose was it? And Jesus says, neither this man sinned nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. That is how the NIV translates it. In fact, that's not altogether different from any other major translation. Gary Burge, however, argues that the punctuation is in the wrong place. Have you encountered this? Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, so I actually, with my limited amount of Greek, so the normal translations of this would be directly opposed to a typical Greg Boydian approach to the text. Like uh, Greg Boyd's theology does not fit the text. Correct. Correct. And I have, I went to the text myself years ago and said, hold on, there's no punctuation here. It could also be punctuated this other way. But I never went past like randomly wondering if anybody who actually knew Greek thought that. And so please, yes, please tell me what he says, because I'm curious if it was my left field guess on another way this could be punctuated. Yeah. So he argues so that in the Greek, uh, but this happened so that the work of God. So anyway, he argues that it should have been a full period. Neither this man sinned nor his parents sinned, period. Then, but in order that... And that's where the NIV gets, but this happened so that. It, literally in Greek, though, it's al hina, but in order that. He says that should carry on into verse 4, and we should literally read it like this. But so that the work of God might be displayed in his life, it is necessary for us to do the works of him who sent me while it is still day. In other words, I'm not going to answer that question. It didn't happen because of his sin. It didn't happen because of his parents' sin. I want you to drop that, and I want you to focus on what I have to say. And what I have to say is, while it is still day, I want you to focus on doing the works that God has us to do, and that's going to result in the work of God being displayed in his life. Yes. This. So, okay, tell me your thoughts about that. I think it's entirely plausible. He gives a couple of different instances in John's writing that uses this al-hina in that exact way, but it is admittedly the minority. I think he cited like 17 different times that al-hina is used in the book of John, and three of them, including this passage, or maybe four, um, would support this type of a reading. The others would support the type of reading that the NIV gave it, that the al-hina is the hinge for the second half of a conditional statement. So it is plausible within even John's writing, let alone Greek language, to read it this way. And there is nothing in the text, in, in my opinion, there's nothing in the text that immediately tells you theologically which one you have to pick. I think it is purely a theological decision about which way the, the punctuation should be placed. That's fascinating to me. And there is a huge theological difference between the two. Miles apart, yes. And, but the problem is no major translation follows Burge's suggestion. The uh, composite text that most people use to study out of is either the Greek New Testament 
5, as put out by the United Bible Society, or the uh, Nestle Aland 28. Neither of them use the punctuation like Burge is suggesting. So either this is a well-entrenched thing that just hasn't had chance to loosen up yet, or there's some really good arguments to be made on the other side that I don't know about. Well, uh, as is always the case in these moments, I think it is wonderful and deeply valuable that there are men and women who have devoted themselves to scholarship on the Word of God. And in our reading of Scripture, we need to always acknowledge that we are deeply dependent upon our brothers and sisters who are scholars, that we read the Bible as a community, even when we sit alone in our rooms reading the Bible. Mm -hmm. And whatever that means for this individual moment, I am always deeply grateful because if it were not for those scholars, there would be no English Bible. There would be no translations that help me understand scripture as a non-Greek reader. There would be no academic Greek text for you to study. There would just be lots of little bits of papyrus floating around. Um, Right. Which is in turn dependent upon scholars of their own time sitting down and copying these things by hand. So the the layers of dependency here are vast. And I appreciate you saying that we read in community all the time. Yeah. And that is not a weakness. That is not a bad thing. It's not like, oh, man, I guess I shouldn't read the Bible because I don't know what's going on. You know, like, that's not my point at all. My, my point is quite the opposite. Every minute I spend reading the Bible, I stand on the shoulders of thousands of hours of investment into me to have this moment. And that is a cool thing. And I am grateful to God and grateful to all of those generations of scholars that make that moment possible for me. Yeah, 100%. Well, again, from the cliffs or from the heights of wonderful, uh, inspiring thoughts, now on to our Witch Josh question of the week. And uh, this week's Witch Josh question, Witch Josh fell off a cliff on his 16th birthday. And before we answer that, I've got to just tell you, when you accidentally said cliffs a moment ago, I, speaking of fiction, right, it was the moment in the Princess Bride movie where they're all like, the cliffs of insanity. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's funny. I have had Princess Bride on the brain as well for a number of reasons. And I actually pictured the Princess Bride as well, but not that moment. I pictured the rolling down the hill, even though it's not a cliff, and him saying, as you wish. Um, Uh, Well, I am the Josh who fell off a cliff on his 16th birthday, and I can say it was not nearly so graceful, romantic, or cinematic (laughs) in any way. No, so we were at a place uh, in southern Washington called Lacamas Lake. Uh, I was there with some family and friends, and there's a creek that runs into Lacamas Lake. And so we were, I was on the other side of the creek from where people normally go, go, and there is like a cliff there. And it's, it was kind of, kind of a mild ascent. And so I was, you know, 
climbing my way up it. And I grabbed onto a tree branch for support. And that tree branch snapped in my hand and I fell straight backward onto a rock in the creek and then flipped over onto my face into the creek. And the people watching it thought for sure I was very seriously injured. Um, as it turns out, I was not. I mean, I was a little sore for a couple of days, but I had no major injuries whatsoever. But it makes for a great 16th birthday story. That's hilarious. But at least you had a, yeah, a memorable 16th birthday. That's a big deal. Yeah, exactly. So, Well, hey, we on for next week? We sure are. I'm looking forward to it. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.